Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, well, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Rees listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you only thing these stories have in common is that I love them. And I hope you will, too. Well, y'all, the best way I can think to describe today's story is that it is a journey. It's called The Nine Curves River, and it was written by the author R.F. Kuang. R.F., or Rebecca, is a 24-year-old writer and scholar. She's written two novels, The Poppy War and The Dragon Republic, and she's been nominated for a slew of awards. She won the Outstanding Award for Best New Writer at the Hugos just a few weeks back. Rebecca has a master's degree in Chinese studies from the University of Cambridge, no less. And even more impressively, she's currently pursuing a master's in contemporary Chinese studies at Oxford University researching nationalism and ideology in modern Chinese fiction. Her next novel, out in November, is called The Burning God. Now, this story of hers appeared in the anthology The Book of Dragons. The story is about two sisters embarking on a journey together to a market city, and all we understand at the beginning is that this day is an extremely important, life-changing day for them both. But we end up plumbing the depths of sisterhood, of jealousy, of guilt, and sacrifice. The story is told in the second person, older sister speaking to her younger sister, and I would love for you to think about why the older sister is on this trip, whether this was her choice or a duty. She is fulfilling. Please check out the written content advisory in the episode description if you are so inclined and or concerned. And if you're ready, then, let's take a deep breath. And begin. The Nine Curves River by R.F. Kuang. Chapter 1 
We reach Arlong on the fourth day of the Lunar New Year. In Dragon Province, we celebrate the New Year over 15 days. On the third day, families come home to reunite. On the fourth day, we welcome back the gods. You've never been to Arlong before? The farthest you've wandered from our home on Ao Island is the local water market over the canal intersection that links together the archipelago where we live. You've never come with me and Baba to Arlong, the provincial capital, on our yearly trips to trade bone carvings and dried salted mayo for silks, knives, and new wire for hooks. Mama and Baba have never let you. They've always wanted to keep you safe from the capital. Ao Island is a tiny and familiar domain, but Arlong is a rich, greedy, dense, and devouring city. If you're not careful, a creature as tiny and pretty as you would vanish into the crowd in seconds. If Mama and Baba could have had their way, you would never have stepped foot off Owl Island. But even they could not stop the coming of this day. We make the two-hour trip over clear blue waves in a private rented sampan. This is a luxury that under any other circumstance would cost three silvers an hour. Father and I usually paddle our own canoe down the coastline to Arlong every autumn, but today is special. Neither of us will lift a finger to labor. Instead, we will sit back, sucking on dried sugarcane sticks, while the boatman warbles river songs in a loud, oscillating tone that makes you laugh. We've been giggling at his songs for the past hour, requesting repeats of our favorites, and learning the lyrics to the dirtier ones. But you fall silent when Arlong appears on the horizon. The boatman, reading your expression, stops singing. For a long moment, the three of us merely stare as we approach the floating city. The sprawling network of canals that link lush green islands together like emeralds inlaid in sapphire. You've never seen this many boats and shanties wedged together in one place. You've never seen these lily pads, thick and wide as frying walks, firm enough for a small child to stand on without sinking. Come, I reach for your hand and tug you gently toward the shore. You're still staring in wonder, eyes darting frantically around as if you don't know where to look next. There's so much more to see. We must reach Arlong's opposite coast by dark, but the sun is still high in the sky and we have many hours yet. We have time to travel on foot. We step cautiously along the rickety walkways. Arlong's narrow wooden bridges are notoriously unreliable, and on a day like today, when all 10,000 of its residents are outside, cramming the streets on foot or bumping their boats against the boy posts, a single false step could send us tumbling into the chilly water. Oh, I know. 
You don't need to be careful. You could dance across the canals if you wanted to, jumping nimbly from boat to crate to peg. I've seen you navigate the docks at home like a dragonfly skimming the surface of a pond. But slow down, sister. We are not all so gifted. Relax. You have time to savor this. Take a look around you. Drink in the festivities. Most days, our long is a drab, busy market center, all commerce and efficiency. But during Lunar New Year, it explodes with color. Red and gold banners, streamers, and firecracker confetti hang suspended in the air, buoyed up by a gentle wind that has decided just for today to arrest gravity just so. Merchants line every inch of the narrow walkways, gilding the canals, hawking sizzling red bean cakes, fragrant dough buns, caramelized taro cubes, tea eggs, sticky rice dumplings wrapped in bamboo leaves, and rows and rows of tonghulu skewers. These immediately catch your eye. Is that sugar? You ask. Are they... Are they covered in sugar? The Tangulu are dripping with so much sugar, my teeth ache to look. I've tried the sweet, sticky mountain hawthorns just once. Baba bought me a skewer when I was ten, and I've never forgotten the taste. Of course. Can I have one? Why do you even ask? You know that today you can have anything you want. I reach into my pocket for my money pouch. How many? Just one skewer, you say primly, and I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Such a good child, such precocious restraint, even today. I purchase two skewers. You protest, but I press the sticks into your palm until you stop trying to pass them back. I can't eat that many. Then hold on to it for later, I say without thinking. I clamp my jaw shut, but the last word lingers in my throat like the taste of bitter melon. Later. But there is no later. That is the entire point. You pretend not to notice. It has not rained in Arlong for two months. The city officials have done their best to conceal this. Lunar New Year must always be properly fetid, drought or no drought. The yellowing grass has been cleverly concealed with blankets, tents, and scattered flower petals that must have been shipped in from the mainland at great expense. Fresh, juicy, imported fruits are still on display at every corner, though the prices are triple what I've seen before. Mainlanders find it strange to think that drought could be a problem in a place surrounded by blue ocean. But salt water can't save humans or nourish crops. Without rain, the beaches grow hard and splinter like tea eggs steeped for too long. I can tell this drought is serious. The canals are far shallower than they used to be, and in some stretches it's obvious that the boat's bottoms are scraping along the riverbed. 
but you've never been to Arlong before and you have no basis for comparison. I glance down at your wide, delighted eyes, and I can tell this city is the loveliest thing you've ever seen. It's not long before the whispering starts. A pair of old women walking down the bridge toward us notice your golden anklets and bracelets and immediately start to chatter. They conceal their whispers behind cupped hands, but they make no effort to avert their stares. I want to slap them as they pass. In mere minutes, it seems, the entire city has found out you've arrived. Everyone stops and turns their heads, eyes following you as you pass. I'm scared to stop walking, but within an hour we're both starving, and when we pass a cart of fried flaky lotus seed cakes sizzling in oil, we can't help but stop. The hawker, upon seeing you, stuffs a bag with far more cakes than we could possibly eat, but refuses to take our silver. I leave a few coins on his cart, but he runs after us. He won't leave us alone until I let him return the coins to my palm. Please, he says. He smells like sugar. His eyes look wet and red around the rims. It's the least I can do. A small crowd has gathered around us to watch. I suddenly feel sweaty. I don't know what to do. Father instructed me not to seek special treatment, afraid that the crowds might think we were exploiting our position. Baffled, I glance at you. Thank you, you tell the hawker, and keep walking. I stuff my money pouch back in my pocket and follow. The crowd stays with us and grows as we make our way through the canals. You don't seem to mind. You're good at deflecting attention, you who are so used to receiving it. You stare straight ahead as we walk, never baiting your audience, never giving your onlookers reason to jeer. You hold your back straight, chin forward, your expression pleasant and placid, as if you haven't noticed the crowd at all. When someone shouts to ask if you're scared, where did that voice come from? Who was it? I'll kill them. You only blink, smile, and shake your head. Have one, JJ. You pass me a lotus seed cake. They're still warm. You were never an ordinary child. Everyone on Ao Island knew you were special from the day you were born. You came out perfectly silent with a full head of thick black hair, breathing evenly, your lovely dark eyes roving disdainfully around the room as if you were disappointed in everyone else for making such a fuss. The midwife wouldn't accept her full payment because you'd given her so little to do. You were a slender and graceful toddler, and you only became more achingly elegant as you grew, limbs light and delicate as a bird's. The rest of us have sun-browned skin, the shade of coconuts, but yours gleams pale like porcelain, like moonlight. By the time you were three, your hair had grown down to your waist, and it stayed that way, because Mama couldn't bear to snip those thick, silky locks that 
breathed so easily and never frizzed after it rained like mine. By the time you were ten, you were praised as the beauty of the village. Yet you never grew spoiled or proud. We never had to remind you to be humble. You possessed myriad virtues and humility was one of them. You accepted our praise with grave gratitude, reacting no more than a mountain might to being called grand. She's going to break hearts someday, said all our neighbors. And our parents agreed. Not only were you beautiful, you were astonishingly clever. You could recite Tang classics after hearing them only once. You could calculate sums faster than any of us before you turned nine. Mama and Baba hired a tutor to teach you classics and advanced arithmetic, subjects meant for young men attempting to become government officials, an expense that was never spared from me. When you excelled, even at that, our parents began suggesting you might try to test into a university on the mainland, even though half of them still don't accept women. She'll marry a prince. She'll become the first woman court scholar. She'll make our island famous. Everyone loved to fantasize about what you might do and become, because the possibilities seemed so endless. But you never spoke about your future at all. Jaja? Yes? What do you think the dragon is like? I can't suppress a flinch. You know the story of the dragon and the fisherman. You've heard infinite variations of it throughout your short life. From our parents, aunts, uncles, friends, and teachers. Everyone tells it differently because everyone wants to believe something different. There are only three constants. A dragon, a grotto, a fisherman. You heard Baba's version this morning before we left in our sampan. Once upon a time, there was a village dying of drought. The ground shriveled and cracked. The birds flew away and left the forest silent. The grain stores dwindled and disappeared. Facing imminent starvation, the villagers sent their priests to the Dragon Lord, who ruled the waters from the grotto in Nine Curves River and begged him for rain. They offered the dragon many things. Jade statuettes, piles of silver, intricately painted wall scrolls, flocks of chickens and herds of goats, all the valuables the village possessed. The dragon was not satisfied. Desperate, the priests asked the dragon to name his price. I am hungry, said the dragon. We will prepare you a great feast, said the priests. All our finest delicacies. I am not hungry or animal flesh. I crave rarer meat. If you want rain, you will provide it. The priests stared at the dragon in horror. 
We cannot force our own to do this. Then don't. My meal must come willingly. Fear spoils the taste. I will only accept a volunteer. The priests, after hours of squabbling, could not decide who should sacrifice their lives for the village. They drew lots, but the loser refused to go, claiming he was too old, that his flesh would be too dry and chewy. At last, an old fisherman who had ferried the priests to the dragon's grotto and back interrupted them and volunteered to go in their stead. I die, or my daughters die, he said when the priests expressed their amazement. It is that simple. So, the village was saved. The priests told you a different version. Once upon a time, on a dying island, the starving village priests visited the dragon lord, who had until now blessed them with heavy rains and asked him what was wrong. I grow weak, said the dragon. I am old. My spirit withers and I cannot rule this grotto any longer. One of you must take my place. You will have power over the rains, rivers, and oceans. But you must stay in this grotto, which is the source of my power. You may never leave. In this version, too, the fisherman volunteers, even though he has two young daughters whom he will miss dearly. A year after he enters the grotto, his wife brings their daughters to the cave to visit him. But by then, the fisherman's hair has receded, his teeth have lengthened and sharpened, and his skin has turned to glittering blue scales. The girls scream and run away at first sight. They never visit their father again. The priests told you this version, I think, because they think it is kinder. I hate it. I think for a long while, and then I tell you my version. I think the dragon is lonely. I think he wants a friend. He does so much for us, warding away hurricanes, bringing us rain, calming the oceans. He deserves a companion. You mulled this for a moment. So, he doesn't eat the tributes? Why would he? Down in the ocean with all those fish and turtles and shrimp to catch? The dragon can have shark fin soup whenever he wants. Why on earth would you want to eat humans? I pinch your shoulder. Who in their right mind would want to eat you, Skinny? That makes you giggle. I exhale, relieved, and feel like I've finally done something right. I'm talking out of my ass. None of us knows what happens in that grotto. You know that. None of us will ever know which version is true, and by the time you find out, it will be too late. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, let's get back to our story. <sighs> I like to see you laugh. We haven't laughed together like this, like sisters, in a long time. We have not been friends for a long time. I was afraid this would be a day of forced and fake levity. But walking hand in hand through Arlong with you feels so natural. We've fallen comfortably into our old patterns, and it would be so easy to pretend that the past few years had never happened. But today, we must be honest. I was jealous of you. I have never admitted this to you before. I didn't want to say it out loud because it would affirm all the reasons I was jealous to begin with. But yes, I was jealous. I was cruel and I was ashamed. I am still ashamed. I always knew I wasn't pretty. Mother never ran her hands through my hair and sighed at its thickness. She never braided it in twisting, intricate patterns the way she did yours. No one ever commented on the elegant slope of my nose or the arched shape of my eyes. I never lingered in front of a mirror, admiring the shape of my face the way everyone else admired yours. It didn't used to bother me. On our island where the myriad schools of colorful fish in the shallows were far more attractive and more exciting than the boys. My looks hardly mattered. I was strong and I was quick. I could fish and run and shimmy up palm trees just as well as anyone else. And it didn't matter that fish clustered self-sacrificially around your ankles when you waded into the water with a net, or that trees dropped their ripest fruit as if by command when you touch their trunks. Then, when I was 13 and you were nine, the city matchmaker stopped by our home on her annual visit because by then, I was at last old enough for her opinion to matter. She examined my face for all of two seconds before she shook her head and sighed. Pity how the looks always go to the younger sister, she said. Our parents had no response to that. 
I think they were shocked and likely nervous in her presence. But they didn't deny it. Of course they agreed with the matchmaker. It would be so silly to protest. No, both our daughters are beautiful. Don't be absurd. When the shining evidence of your beauty was right there in front of us. That was the first time I saw truly how brightly your star shone over mine. This was even before the priests came. Oh, gods, it became ten times worse after the priests came and started telling everyone you were chosen by the gods and blessed from the day you were born. Not truly human, but a fairy sent down from the heavens. Special. All of that came later. But I started to hate you the day the matchmaker came. Didn't matter how kind, how humble, or how loving you were. All your graciousness only made the gap between us harder to bear. You could afford to be kind because you were so secure in your superiority. I interpreted your kindness as snobbery. And the day the matchmaker came was the first time I wished you were dead. You're too young. My gods, you're far too young. You haven't even begun to live your life. You've only ever seen the sands of our little island. You've never been to the mainland, never visited the great universities we all thought you might enter one day. How could they make you throw all that away? The sun sinks lower over the Daba Mountains, and Arlong's canals reflect burnt gold now instead of bright, searing yellow. Our time is drawing to an end. I know I should cherish these final moments with you and kiss you and hug you, but all I can think is that you're too young. It's not fair. And that makes me want to scream, to overturn this sampan, to jump into the river with you bound in my arms, because even if we go to the same watery fate, at least he will not have you. No, Maymay, I'm all right. I'm just tired. It's been such a long day. Please don't worry about me. Thank you. I would love some Tanghulu. By the time we reached the grottos of the Nine Curves River, a crowd, the entire city, it appears, has assembled by the shore. They watch you pass with varying expressions, some cold and expectant, as if wondering what has taken you so long, some with clamped hands over their mouths, eyes wide with horror. Some are weeping. Some of them cry out to you how brave you are, and how sorry they are. I want to hit them. If they're sorry, then why don't they walk into that grotto themselves? Why are they letting this happen? Why won't anyone try to stop this? I know why. Year after year, 
The people of our archipelago have experimented with this ritual enough times now that we know its effects, even if we will never understand its cause. We know that it rains in the years that we send a sacrifice. We know there is drought in the years that we don't. We still don't know what happens to the dragon's tributes. We don't know if they live or die. No one has ever returned from the grotto, and their bones have never washed up on shore. Perhaps the dragon devours them whole. Or for all we know, perhaps the tributes step into that cave and vanish into another world entirely. This is no consolation to the families. This uncertainty will do nothing to assuage our parents' pain. But they are two people, and their opinions mean nothing stacked against the weight of our longs. Our long citizens have chosen to sentence my sister to death. Who can blame them? Droughts are horrible things. Droughts mean withered fields and empty granaries and stomachs bloated from being stuffed with cotton, goose down, and tree bark. Droughts mean shriveled carcasses littered along the canals with no one left alive to tie rocks around their ankles and roll them into the sea. Droughts are a thousand times worse than the quick, brutal death of one little girl. No matter how sorry the crowd at the shore professes to be, no one will lift a finger to help you today. I know this. Because I know, better than anyone, how selfish a person can be. I began to torture you first with my indifference. You see, when I began to hate you, I wanted to hurt you. And it seemed the easiest way to do that was to ignore you. The day after the matchmaker left, you asked to come with me when I went out to check my bird traps in the forest. And I said, no. You'll get in the way, I said. I'd never said that to you before. And we both knew it was a lie. You were nimbler with those traps than anyone. But I said it anyway. You're always following me around. Can't you leave me alone? It startled me. How quickly tears sprang to your eyes. I hadn't expected this degree of devastation. For a moment, I was stricken. Then I felt this thick, squirming tendril of delight. Delight that you cared what I thought of you this much. That I, your Jizhe, still wielded this much power over you. So I began to routinely ignore and exclude you. Jizhe, do you want to fly paper kites with me? No. Jizhe, will you go climbing for coconuts with me? No. Finally. You learned to stop asking, but I knew that time hadn't dulled the pain. You didn't have other friends on the island. Either you scared the other girls your age or they scared you. I was all you had, and I refused to be that anymore. But it wasn't just enough to hurt you, because everyone else still loved you. 
Whenever you cried, someone was always there to pick you up and wipe your tears away and tell you how special and wonderful you were. Hush, hush, don't cry, you little pearl of a girl. You are so lovely. What do you have to cry about? I thought if I could just convince the rest of the island that you weren't as wonderful as everyone thought, then that would finally make us equal. That's why I told all those boys that you were a white snake. We'd grown up hearing stories about magical white snakes, beautiful women who were actually powerful serpent demons in disguise, who used their hundreds of years of magical training to assume human forms and trick foolish men into falling desperately in love with them. On the mainland, white snake stories are love stories. Their new husbands inevitably discover their true form but pledge their everlasting love regardless. Love triumphs over original nature. The white snakes are not predators. They just want to know the touch of human love. But on our island, white snake stories are about deception. The wily white snake seduces and manipulates. She blinds everyone to her true nature, poisonous, foul, and disgusting. When the priests discover what she is, they drug her drink to make her lose her human glamour. And then they lop off her head. This, I told the boys, was the source of your beauty. Why your skin shone white instead of coconut brown. Why you always wore such a mysterious, enticing smile. Why you could predict days beforehand when rain was going to come. Why you could tell us that Auntie Yo's eldest son had been injured climbing trees hours before anyone discovered him. I've seen her return to her true form, I told them. She can't maintain her human disguise all the time. It's exhausting. She has to rest. When she thinks no one is looking, she takes off all her clothes and shrinks into a slimy little coil. I weaved my fingers through the air for effect. That's how she sleeps. Of course, I had never seen any such thing. They let me speak the truth through metaphor about how much I envied and detested your gifts that could not possibly be natural, because if they were unnatural, like myth implied, then that meant they were not gifts at all, but demonic trickery. I didn't think the boys would actually believe me. I didn't think they would go so far. The boys were rowdy creatures we'd known since infancy. We'd grown up together. We'd played and fished and climbed together. We'd gone swimming naked in the ocean together without so much as a blush because back then our bodies were just sexless, neutral shapes. The boys were loud and energetic, perhaps too easily excitable, too quick to break out into fistfights, but they had never once harmed us. They were good boys. I thought they might laugh at my story. I thought they might jeer and tease you the next time they saw you. At the very least, I thought they might stop adoring you. Please believe me, sister. I never thought they would hurt you. Is it time already? You ask. Crowds have grown quiet 
expectant. I look up at the darkening sky. The sun bleeds crimson through pink clouds, but it hasn't yet started to skim the horizon. We have a few minutes still, I say. Good, you say. You stand with your eyes closed. I don't know what you're thinking about, and I don't ask. I reach tentatively for your shoulder, then draw my hand back, uncertain. I want to comfort you. This is my duty, the entire reason Baba and Mama sent me here with you, but I don't know how. I have no idea what I could possibly say to make this easier. And I can't comfort you through gestures. I can't be the strong big sister pulling you into my chest. I've long relinquished all claim to that position. I'm not scared. You answer my question for me. You don't sound scared. You sound so unearthly calm. You smile up at me and squeeze my hand. I'm just remembering. On our island, there live deadly snakes, thin as an index finger and long as an adult's forearm. They hide in used fire pits and bushes at the edge of the forest. They are rare, but deadly. A single bite makes their victims swell grotesquely, each limb puffed up like an overripe red and green mottled mango. We're taught as little children how to recognize their vibrant patterning like alarm bells, rich red and yellow with black stripes. When our parents find their nests, they clear them out using two remedies. Smoke, to choke them out into the open where we stand waiting with shovels to chop off their heads, and sharp white vinegar to pour in circles on the ground, which sears their bellies when they try to slither away. I wasn't there when the boys attacked you. That is the single, thin veneer of deniability that I've hid behind. I didn't know they were coming. I didn't tell them to do it. And I still don't know precisely what happened. None of us do. You wouldn't tell us anything when you came home smelling acrid and sour with your clothes torn, burned and singed, just like your hair. Your pale skin was crisscrossed with a hundred tiny inflamed lacerations. Tear tracks carved through the soot on your face, but you'd long stopped crying. You wouldn't speak at all. Baba begged you a thousand times to tell him who'd done this to you, but you kept your trembling, wide-eyed silence. Only I knew. Smoke and vinegar. We all knew that was how you killed snakes. The boy's logic was so plainly clear. But I said nothing. I was afraid if I betrayed the boys, then they might betray me. That night, the priest visited our home for the last time. By then, Mama had wiped the soot from your face and wrapped you in a silk robe to conceal your still bleeding scars. But the priests didn't seem to notice. They'd come regarding a different matter. They said the oracle bones had spoken, 
your year had come. What does that mean? Our mother asked. The head priest looked her very calmly in the eyes and said, It means the dragon is lonely. And then our mother screamed. At last, the sun is about to set. Its dying, burnished glow twinkles in the shallow waves around our ankles like molten gold. Our parents aren't here with you. Mama would have come in your stead if they had let her. Baba would have torn the priests apart with his bare hands for you if he'd thought that would make a modicum of difference. But this they cannot watch. After you told the priests you would go willingly as a volunteer, there was nothing more they could do. They couldn't have locked you up. They would never do that to you. They respected your choice. They said their goodbyes on the island. But they didn't want you to be alone in these last moments, so they sent me. Why had they so quickly assumed I would be better able to bear it? Was it because they knew or suspected that I didn't love you as much? I don't know what to say. I have been swallowing my grief all day. I've wanted to maintain the illusion as long as I could that we were just here for the festival. But now, the moment has come and my words congeal in my throat like dry rice balls. You don't wait for me to find my voice. The light is fading fast now, and you need to go quickly while you might still bring a little light to arm you. You take two steps toward the grotto, then glance back over your shoulder. You've been a good sister. The very best. Then you smile. And I want to weep. I'm sorry. It's not enough. It's not what you deserve, but I'll never be able to give you what you deserve. It's too late for that. Maymay, I'm... You don't turn around. Remember? I call out as you wade farther into the grotto, the waves rocking gently against your chest. All the myths are wrong. I don't know... What will happen to you in that grotto? I know what they say happens. I know what our mother is imagining now in her grief. The rapid shredding of your lifeless body, ripped apart by fangs as long as you are tall. But somehow, I find this act of savagery ridiculous, impossible, under this quiet, moonlit night. The dragon gives and protects life. He brings us rain, and he keeps our islands safe. He is ultimately benevolent, not some rabid monster. An old fisherman I met at a local market told me a lovely story once. He said the grotto leads to a beautiful palace. He said the dragon is kind to his tributes and treats them well. He teaches them magic and trains them to swim underwater without ever needing to come up for air. 
He dazzles them with treasures that we above water can only dream of, and that is why they never come back. Their new world is so beautiful, they never want to leave. Whose fault is it that our monsters are lonely? The white snake became a human because she craved the touch of warm, loving flesh. The dragon begs for a new companion every year because he grows lonely in the grotto, the sight of his power and his prison. Our monsters are lonely, and they cannot be blamed that their kisses are poison or that they drown with their embrace. I suspect this is because they don't know how to love, and we never taught them. They ventured bravely into our world, and we responded with fire, lie, vinegar, and spears. We take your gifts, but still we will cast you out because you terrify us. You cannot help the way you were made. We cannot help the way we were made. We demand and take everything from you and attribute our ingratitude to fear. We don't know another way. The sun has disappeared now, and I could only barely glimpse your pale neck and ears protruding over the water. It has not rained in Arlong in over two months. And if there is any justice in the world... It will not rain for a very long time. This story slays me um, because of the nature of the tragedy, I think. We spend all day in this woman's head. She's having this internal dialogue with herself, going over all of the things that that she needs to say to her sister, but can't or won't? I'm not sure. And the, the tragedy, the real tragedy for me, is that... And she only says a very few things out loud throughout the course of the day, right? They have a little dialogue about the the, the Tangkulu. Um, and then she, as, as, as it's getting really late, I mean, as, as, as it's coming down to it, zero hour, right? She starts this apology, and then the sister cuts her off, right? And the last thing her sister says to her is, you were, you were a good sister, the best. Right? Which, of course, does nothing to alleviate her sense of, of guilt and regret. And then true to the setup of the story, at least, at least for, for me, she can only really experience the depth of the love for her sister after she's gone. Right? 
she 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 invokes that the entire region experience the depth of the kind of pain she's feeling by asking that it not rain for a very long time. And boy, that slays me. Um, the depth of human suffering, our ability to deny ourselves the things that we need the most and then in turn beat ourselves up for it whip ourselves for that response of denial um i think that's uniquely human it doesn't make sense really to hold ourselves back from the things that um we want desire crave but it's scary it's scary to be vulnerable it's scary to admit that we have desires needs cravings for love affection belonging these are our dragons the fear of risking rejection so we continue to uh, offer sacrifices tributes to the fear to our dragons in the hopes that someone will see or intuit our need and provide for us what it is we're longing for and if we're lucky if we hang in there long enough and are honest with ourselves enough and practice that that sort of rigorous self-introspection that I talk about so often if we do that enough then it sort of begins to make us brave that way when we risk emotionally when we take that chance to love and insist on being loved in return that fear holds no weight, no water. We find out that there is no such thing as dragons after all. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, y'all. And we have a new researcher this season. That's Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. And our editing and sound design is by Justin Asher, one of our new kids on the block. My sincere thanks to R.F. Kuang for allowing me to read her story today. It was published in the anthology entitled The Book of Dragons, which is available in hardback, ebook, and audio format. Rebecca's new novel, the third in her Poppy War series, is out this November 17th, but you can pre order it right now. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please recommend an episode to a friend who you think might enjoy it. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And why not include a story suggestion for us? We love them. 
We read them, we use them. And if you would prefer to listen to episodes ad-free and listen to exclusive bonus author interviews, you can do that on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon, Josephine Maharana, she's the boss, and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVarBurton.com on Instagram. I will see you all next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.